Hi, this is Jason. Before we start today's episode, Jeff and I would like your feedback on our podcast. Please go to rattleandpedal.com slash survey to take an 11-question survey. The first 30 respondents will receive a $10 Starbucks gift card. Thanks for your time. Now on to the episode. Listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So, Jeff, in preparing for this episode, I had this really random, loose thought. And that is that we've seen over the last decade or more this migration of software to software as a service, you know, so from software to SaaS. And I think there's an inverse model to this, which is service to software. So turning a service into a piece of software, which increasingly is really what I see firms wanting to do or trying to do. And so that is what I want to talk about. Well, and I thought there was going to be a great punchline in that setup. <laughs> I was thinking of giving it like some kind of moniker, you know, SaaS, CS, maybe services of software. But I don't know if that really <laughs> holds up that well. Another one of the holy grails of professional services. All right. So why would we want to do this? You know, why would we want to, we're actually, I guess, calling it productizing a service. And what we mean by that is taking a tangible service that's delivered, you know, presumably by high powered, high compensation consultants in a very customized one-to-one way and turning it into, into something different, a product, a tangible product of some kind that can be bought. I've got at least five of them. Whoa. Some of them kind of you know, came out in that little snippet there, but let's hear them. The first one that jumped to mind was just this idea of turning IP into a repeatable revenue stream. You know, so the idea that we've got this IP that we've developed around this consulting service we're providing. And now, you know, the the whole premise of the SaaS industry is to make something, you know, monthly or annual credit card transactions. So that the idea of having this repeatable revenue stream that's going to pay us, you know, with a 97% customer loyalty rate in per- perpetuity sounds pretty appealing, right? If it's profitable, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe. We'll come back to that one later. <laughs> Profitability, it turns it may not be that important. Well, that's the first thing. Second thing I came up with was the idea of just tangibility, you know, so you know, making something that's tangible that you can both scale and sell a piece of software that's based on IP that has contractual customers that retain at a 90% plus rate is much easier to sell in the open marketplace than a mushy consulting service that hinges on the relationships of partners. You're learning. We discussed that when we were talking about marketing heroes and Theodore Levitt's make tangible the intangible. That's a good one. Keep going. You're on a roll. All right. So the next one that came to mind was this idea. And then we've had a couple of clients that have kind of done this sort of shifting from expensive resources to that are rare. So really rare senior talent consultants that are really expensive that are you know, delivered into the client experience to diagnose the problem and, and, and develop the solution to something that can be delivered by a little less expensive, less rare resource. So I I think there's some real advantages to that potentially. So what you're saying is reallocating those high-end resources to higher value types of projects and work? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, and then being able to deliver the the service you used to deliver with seasoned high-level resource through something that's more repeatable and tangible with a lower-level resource. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The other one that jumps out is sort of moving from one-to-one working relationships to one-to-many working relationships. So the idea of, well, you know, a consulting arrangement is is usually a, a one-to-one relationship between the consulting firm and the client. And when you productize something, you have the ability to work with, you know, many clients at, at the same time that are at different points of their maturity, but all kind of on a similar journey together. And that's just a different way of, of operating. And it's in some ways, maybe a little more efficient. Mm-hmm. A lot more efficient. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, a lot more. Sorry, you're yeah. right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's... Well, you did all right. My last one of the five would be to deliver advice and expertise remotely. So the idea that, you know, one of the biggest frustrations for most consultants is not, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of consultants is the travel, right? At some point, they get burned out of how much travel they're doing in the consulting role that they're in. And turning that into something that can be delivered more remotely with less travel is generally appealing to to certain people. So you see a lot of training, which we'll talk more about that, emerge from firms as ways to mitigate the demand of travel. Mm, Yes, that's another good one. Mm -hmm. So- well, I'm sure there's more. That's just what came to mind for me when I was thinking about this. You know, these are all the reasons that I see clients want to productize services. And and on full disclosure, we've looked to productize services here. We've and we've done it. You know, a couple of times. Yeah. I suppose there's another one actually as, as we're talking that just jumps out to me, which would be creating incremental value on top of an existing service. So we had a couple of clients that at certain points in time either built or had technology that was used to enhance the value proposition of the service that they were providing. So the software was not necessarily a standalone product. It was a an added value to the working relationship. That is a really good one. I see that a lot. And oftentimes with these products, I think they evolve along that path. They aren't developed in traditional, I, th- I think, product development life cycle steps. They evolve out of some kind of demand from the client. I was going to add that one to yours. I thought that was a really good add. Kind of the flip side of that would be the clients are demanding a more cost-effective approach than you know time and material, and they're looking for some kind of solution. The other one I think is is really important, and I, I've seen this a lot as well, is the development of a product to protect market share because of other firms, non-traditional firms coming into the space, or to your point, incremental value to differentiate from a direct competitor. But people will invest in products and even money losing products to some degree in order to protect that big consulting relationship. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, the, the software in some instances it's bundled in the relationship and the client doesn't want to lose that technology that they're using to facilitate the relationship because it's so valuable to them even in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we've had a couple of relationships like that, as a matter of fact, with people that we work with that have done that, you know, in servicing our agency where they've got, you know, a specific piece of technology that they've either built or they have licensed and resold and used it to service the relationship. And after a while, you become attached to that software and you go, well, this relationship isn't working real well right now, but I don't want to give up my software. (laughs) How do I fix that? Well, it's the cost of change, right? And you don't want to pay that cost. But it also speaks to, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, you know, those three drivers of brand preference, expertise, results, 
and that relationship or ease of doing business with. And the software definitely can fall into that, boy, they sure make this easy for me. Even though it's not perfect, it sure allows me to do a lot of other things. Yeah. So, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about the ways you can productize. Because as I see it, there's at least two ways you can productize a highly customized consulting service. There's probably a lot more, but there was just two that jumped out to me that were obvious that I see from our clients. The first would be to take that customized consulting service and turn it into training, turning it into something that's more tangible, like you said, sort of almost designed as a product. So it's more, this is specifically what happens when and how and how it's done. And it's buttoned up with process and materials and all kinds of supporting things that the client's going to use to to consume the training, either online, off, in person, or some combination of the two. And then there's the obvious one, which is, you know, consulting software. So turning that to what is provided as a service and turning it into software, straight up software. I'm sure there's more, but those are the ones that jumped out to me right away. It's so funny that you mentioned that. I never considered training as a productization but it really is. And you and I have worked on some clients that that was the model. They went from kind of hardcore consulting to teaching clients how to do what they do. And we know where that ends up <laughs> sometimes, right? You can train yourself out of a, a business altogether. <laughs> train yourself out of a job. Yeah. It, what's interesting, because if you think about large training providers, you know, Dale mm-hmm. Carnegie or some of the training firms we've talked about in those settings, they're essentially providing a, a consulting like relationship, right? They're, they're, they're teaching people how to apply a set of ideas and concepts to improve whatever it is they're doing. But the people that develop the methodologies are not delivering it at all, right? They're, you know, and in fact, in Dale Carnegie's instance, it's a franchise model, right? So you've got someone who develops the curriculum, structures it, designs it, packages it, builds it, and then hands it off to a, a set of franchisees that, that are then trained on how to deliver it. You know, so I think that's a really good example of, of what that looks like and how it's, you know, so it is really becoming a product that I can buy off the shelf. And I say to myself, well, you know, if I'm struggling through this issue, is there a training product out there that I could buy to help me work through that? Boy, we could do a whole show on that one. Yeah. I mean, you really could. You could spend a lot of time talking about it. And it's funny is we have another client that actually sort of has both of those models side by side. You know, so you you have a challenge and you have a desired outcome and you can either buy it as a consulting relationship and a one-on-one delivery, or you can buy it as a trading system that's more, obviously less expensive and delivered through with different resources. You know, and we've actually, tr- we've done it here. I mean, we have an online training program that we've stood up and we, and people can buy into. And a lot of the methodologies that we use to to deliver service to our clients are baked into that training program and you can buy it on a monthly licensing fee or not licensing fee, but a monthly fee and sort of DIY, right? You know, kind of go through the journey that we would take a client on all by yourself with us as a little voice in this, you know, coming out of a website. I, mean, I would say, you know, as we shift into the challenges of this, I think that that's, that's probably the first challenge I see in general for, for firms that want to make this journey is that your the delivery model is changing. You know, you're going from you know, being one-on-one rendering advice and telling someone how to do something or even doing it for them to sort of co-creating where you're, you're providing a curriculum or you're providing a set of best practices, or you're providing a tool that enables someone to do something, but they're largely going to do it on their own. 
And so you're, you're, you're empowering them, which, which I don't think is a, a, a you know, I don't think it's a, a sea change shift for consulting firms because a lot of consulting firms do, you know, lots of knowledge transfer in their work. But I do think it's something that they don't, aren't used to doing, thinking that way. I think that's true of both. Training requires a unique discipline in order to teach effectively and particularly adult learners. But the software is the same thing. You have firms moving outside of their core capabilities and into new disciplines. And we'll get to challenges in just a moment, but that's one of the the top ones on the list. And when you're dealing with highly educated, highly driven, normally successful types of professionals, they can overestimate their ability to deliver on some of these things. Yeah. That's a big challenge. So let's talk a little bit about product as software. Okay. And what that looks like and how people... You mean CS? Services software? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And in my experience, I see very few firms think about, hey, let's become a software company because consulting is is not going to be around long and there's more money in software or something. You know, they don't think in those terms. They normally, as we talked about earlier, approach it from an incremental standpoint. There's not a lot of due diligence. It's not well thought out. It may start with you know, simple database or Excel spreadsheet that's over-engineered and offered to a client to administrate some mundane task, you know, benefits administration in the HR space. That's how that kind of evolved. So much of what Hewitt and Towers Perrin were doing, you know, all started with Excel spreadsheets. And, you know, today, I mean, they're just starting with different database tables and probably putting some kind of pretty front end on it because a client needs a productivity tool. And then they kind of evolve from there. So they're not well thought out. And the software exists, as you said earlier, to create ease of use for the service delivery for the customer, for the client. Yes, yes. And And it it involves, you know, from a evolutionary perspective. And it probably happens that way because there's nobody in the market providing that stuff. When that stuff was was going on, PeopleSoft and Workday, all those things were not around. They evolved out of that. You know, and the same is true with the ADPs of the world and those type of services because a lot of professional services in HR space, you know, moved into that payroll space because it was a incremental add-on to, you know, the administration of the benefits and stuff they were doing. It's like, well, that's the next logical place to to go. Yeah. So in a way, what you're saying is firms just by design are highly unlikely to say, well, let's take this service and turn it into a piece of software. They're more likely to say, let's look at ways we could incrementally use software to make this service easier for the customer, less expensive to deliver, whatever it might be. I can buy that. Yeah. I can buy that. It's sort of a rare, it's, it's the rare person that looks at the world and sees it differently. And the, the example that comes to mind for me is, is a friend of mine. So, so Chris Parsons, who runs Knowledge Architecture, which is a, a social internet for architecture engineering firms. 
remember I talked to him about this once. And when he, when he first started the business, he said, he said, I started the business because I had a hypothesis. And my hypothesis was that intranets should be products, not projects. So that was his whole hypothesis was that he wanted to replace something that was being bought as a service into being bought as a piece of software. Mm. And, uh, you know, 100 plus clients later, here he is, right? But to your point, he didn't take an existing design firm or something that was building intranets. He came at it from an entirely different place. He sort of walked in and looked around and said, well, this is all backwards, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And that's brilliant. To me, that's brilliant. That's a typical. That's, hey, I'm thinking about this completely different. I'm starting with a software company and addressing a big problem. Because those intranets you know, are self-consuming. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they're always over-engineered and underperforming, and they're built you know, on proprietary software. And they always, always end up collapsing. So there is a great opportunity right there. I love it. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. To me, one of the biggest challenges that firms have in making a decision to productize a service, especially around software, if they're going to turn it into software, and I learned this the hard way, and I, actually I learned it from Chris, is they don't have technologists. They don't have people on staff that look at the world that way. Their inclination is to take a partner and the partner is going to champion this thing. Or they'll take the IT lead who's responsible for infrastructure and he'll, he or she will champion it. But a technologist looks at the world in a totally different way. And, you know, so that's sort of like the first thing I think that firms lack that they need is they have to really get a true technologist who can look at this and say, well, hmm, wait a minute, what would that even, what would that really mean? How would that change things? To your point, you know, in the internet example, how do we go from, instead of making these intranets heinously complex and over-invested in, how do we simplify them and streamline them so that they can be stood up in a much more efficient manner so that it is viable as a product, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think partners and typical IT folks think that way. I could be wrong. And, and there's rare exceptions, of course. There always are. Yeah. And, and again, I think it's evolutionary because it takes time to learn. You get into situations, you try to fix it, you know, you kind of fix it, you don't fix it, and you just iterate on these things. And I think that's why the how to launch, how to develop a product often gets muddied in professional services firms. I, I'll give you two examples. I have a friend who runs a sales and marketing support company in the accounting industry. And they went through, I don't know how many CRM systems, off-the-shelf CRM systems, and trying to implement them for their clients. And after years of doing this work, they made their own for their own sales methodology. And they just stripped away everything that's not relevant to the way the accounting industry works. and came up with something that worked for them. Well, they decided the implementation of off-the-shelf stuff in their clients was just too time-consuming and not effective. 
they started offering their solutions to their client in order to make it easier for them to get the other work they needed to be done. Well, the clients were having great success with it, so they refined it some more. And then all of a sudden, it's a product offered exclusively to their clients. Initially, they refined it some more, and then they launched it on a more broad basis. I have a client that's in document management. If you get into just Google document management, you'll start with SharePoint and you'll get 50 different document management types of software companies. Well, this client did the exact same thing. They had a niche, they streamlined, they took all of the superfluous stuff out. They looked at the document management value chain and they said, you know, we're not messing with the early stages of contract management, we're just managing this one section for this market and went to market that way. And that product evolved out of just scanning. They were just scanning and in cleaning out documents for old, you know, old paper and just codifying them. Then all of a sudden they have a software product. It's interesting how these evolve. So I think the challenge is you need to appreciate that they evolve and manage, you know, from an agile perspective that you don't have this big strategy. So you have to do it with a, an agile methodology and probably most don't even have that. Or you need to think more strategically about what you're doing here before you just squander a lot of resources and time. You know, the, the other big challenge that jumps out to me, and I'm I, thinking through all the clients that we've had who have ever tried to productize a service into a piece of software. And a couple of them jumped out where they never reset their expectations for what it means to run a software. Mm. And you mentioned it earlier because you, you kind of hinted at it. You said, well, as long as it's profitable, well, that's actually not true in the world of software. You know, so the world of software operates under a different operating model than the world of consulting. And, you know, the typical professional services firm wants 20% profit at the bottom and all growth that we're pursuing is all perceived to be profitable growth. That's not how SaaS companies behave. And in fact, there's a pretty well published notion of this, this thing of the rule of 40, which is this idea that the, the growth of a software firm plus its profit should be roughly 40%. So if you're not growing, you should get 40% profit. If you're growing at a 50% clip, you should be losing 10%, right? It's a loose idea, but but the idea is when you think about software companies, profitability is rarely even a topic of conversation. And so the challenge here is not necessarily that you have to take venture money and you have to rethink everything about what you thought about business, but I think it is you have to quickly recognize that that typical margin model that you're used to operating under as a professional services firm, you need to throw it out the window and operate with a whole different model. And that means usually, as we talked earlier in this podcast, more investments in marketing than you're probably used to and comfortable with. And in certain stages of growth, low or no or negative profit and higher profits at certain other stages. It's a very different business mindset that needs to come to the table. And so actually, I think that sort of changing the mindset might be the biggest challenge that firms have in making this leap. Yeah, I, I think that's a good one. I think that's a really good one. I, I like your explanation of the rule of 40 there too. Related to that is along that profitability model that you just said, the financial model is the delivery model and not just how it's delivered, but how you deal with client issues. <laughs> because yeah. dealing with a, a software issue is very different than dealing with, you know, a, a consulting people issue or project issue. It's very different. And then to your point, how do you sell it on the front end? Selling a product versus a consulting services is a somewhat significant difference. 
I think you're definitely talking features and benefits and different things. So I think that's a real good one. Yeah. No. You know, the, the other, I don't, I guess this is a challenge. We talked about it on another podcast is firms aren't equipped to do due diligence. So they let these things evolve, as I said, and they don't do the proper due diligence around the market viability and trying, as as we said before, disprove that viability before they invest in it. And we also kind of talked about milestones of an of investment because these things evolve. I think all those disciplines kind of can go out the window. So you have to be yeah. aware that you still have to do due diligence on these products, even if they're evolving. I totally agree. As you're talking, what I'm trying to do is I'm realizing that we are basically out of time. And so what I'm thinking through is, is instead, I don't want to leave our listeners on, hey, here's all the challenges. I want to leave them with some good advice. So I was thinking through the three or four things. When I think about our experience, either turning services into products on our own or helping our clients do it, I think about the typical mistakes that we've seen and how if I could rewind it and do it all over again, these are the three or four things that would sort of jump out to me. And I'll, and I'll let you kind of layer on from there and we'll take it to a wrap. The first one I follow is what you just said, which is be rigorous. Make sure you do your due diligence and you really understand the niche that this new product is going to fit, especially if it's a piece of software. Although I suppose it holds true for a training service as well. So make sure you have clarity on on the white space for this offering. That's sort of the first one. The second one is you you need to quickly change your mindset on operating models. You got to get embedded in the technology community if you're doing a software product. You got to get into the business of software. You have to get into all the different ways of thinking that software companies bring to the table. Paired with that is is you need a technologist. If you're really going to make this work, you need a technologist that has a vision for what the technology is going to be. And then... I think, like you said, it may be, maybe the fourth thing on that would be you need to understand that the sales and marketing model for your software is pretty radically different from the sales and marketing model from your consulting firm. And you need to be quick to understand that and what that means. Those are sort of, I guess, my, my four big ones. Anything you want to layer on top of that? I'd layer two. You have to think strategically about it. You hinted at that in terms of doing due diligence and thinking through the capabilities that you need, not just a technologist, but, you know, somebody that heads product development from a strategic perspective. And then related to your sales and marketing, not only does it change, you have to invest in it. Softwares are a dime a dozen now with the cloud. I mean, just look at the CRM or marketing automation markets. But I mean, just look at project or team management. I mean, and there's just hundreds of them. And you really need to decide, do you want to be in the software business or is it better just to pick a partner and use that one with all of its its warts to get your work done? Because launching a software product like that sucks a lot of time and resources. And if it's not your core capability, you're going to run into some challenges that might affect your core business. I think that was a a challenge masquerading as advice, but we'll wrap on that anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's always how I deliver. (laughs) Yeah. All right. A a year and three episodes in, I'm still working on it, Jason. (laughs) 
Well, this was a good discussion, and I hope that listeners, you know, were able to follow the arc of 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 why you might want to productize a service, how you can do it, the challenges associated with it, and then walked away at least with a handful of of pieces of recommendations of of how to do it successfully. So, all right, man, I'll talk to you next week. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Hi, this is Jason. Jeff and I would like your feedback on our podcast. Please go to rattleandpedal.com slash survey to take an 11-question survey. The first 30 respondents will receive a $10 Starbucks gift card. Thanks for your time.